All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Namo Om Vishnu Padaya. Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Shumate Bhaktivedanta Swami Niti Namine. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pachani Nirvasesa Sindhavadi Paskachadi Shachani. Mandeham Sri Guru Sri Uta Padakamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavamscha. Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvaditam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitam Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya So it's November 2nd, 2011. Nice to see all you guys. In Auckland, New Zealand. And we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 8, Chapter 4. Gajendra returns to the spiritual world. We're going to be reading texts 7 through 10. And this is going to be on reality and our interpretation of reality. Tomorrow will be my last class, which will be on text 11 and 12, which will be how to react to reverses, seeming reverses in life. So we will go through text 7 together. Savai Purva Mabhudraja Savai Purva Satama Indrajumna iti kyato Vishnu vrata parayanaha Saha This elephant engender Vai Indeed Purva Formerly Adhut Was Raja, king, Pandya, of the country known as Pandya, Dravida Satama, the best of those born in Dravida Desha, South India, Indrajumna, by the name Maharaja Indrajumna, Iti, thus, Kyata, celebrated. Vishnu Vrata Parayana, who is a first class Vaishnava always engaged in the service of the Lord. Okay, so, just a little recap what we've done so far in this chapter. We first looked at the crocodile, right, Huhu, and how he had been cursed, and we talked about curses. And we talked about particularly being the recipient of a curse. Everybody know that? Talked about from what it's like to be cursed. Then we looked at the gender. That was yesterday. And what was the main theme yesterday? Touch. How the gender was touched by Krishna. And we talked about material touch and spiritual touch. Now we're going to go into the story of Gajendra being cursed. So we looked at Hugu being cursed. Now this is going to be Gajendra being cursed. But today we're going to look at curses from the point of view of the cursor instead of the cursee. Okay? And say, 
tomorrow, then we'll switch back to the curse in the case of Gajendra and expand it, not just look at curses, but any reverses in life, any seeming difficulties in life, not only curses. Yes, we're going to read through text 7 through 10. Text 7. This Gajendra had formerly been a Vaishnava, and the king of the country known as Pandya, which is in the province of Dravida, South India. In his previous life, he was known as Indrajuna Maharaj. Text 8. Indrajuna Maharaj retired from family life and went to the Malaya Hills, where he had a small cottage for his ashram. He wore matted locks on his head and always engaged in austerities. Once, while observing the vow of silence, he was fully engaged in the worship of the Lord and absorbed in the ecstasy of love of Godhead. We might just mention as an aside uh, that the gender is given as an example in Bhaktivisamrita Sindhu of what kind of a devotee. Rupa Goswami gives an example of what kind of a devotee. In distress. In distress. So one of the four kinds of pious people, neophyte devotee, the four pious people are neophytes. Is given an example of a neophyte who approaches the Lord in distress. So it's interesting that even so, we read that in his last line he was absorbed in ecstasy. The word in this particular verse is apuntaha. Okay, text 9. While Indrajuna Maharaj was engaged in ecstatic meditation, worshipping the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the great sage of Yastamuni arrived there, surrounded by his disciples. When the Muni saw that Maharaj Indrajuna, who was sitting in a secluded place, remained silent and did not follow the etiquette of offering him a reception, he was very angry. Text 10. Augustamuni then spoke the curse against the king. The king Indrajuna is not at all gentle, being low and uneducated. He is insulted, a Brahmana. May he therefore enter the region of darkness and receive the dull, dumb body of an elephant. Purport. An elephant is very strong and has a very big body and it can work very hard and eat a large quantity of food. But its intelligence is not at all commensurate with its size and strength. Thus, in sight of so much bodily strain, the elephant works as a menial servant for a human being. Agastimuni thought it wise to curse the king to become an elephant, because the powerful king did not receive Agastimuni as one is obliged to receive a Brahmana. Yet, although Agastimuni cursed Maharaj and Arjuna to become an elephant, the curse was indirectly a benediction. For by undergoing one life as an elephant, Indrajuna Maharaja ended the reactions for all the sins in his previous life. Immediately after the expiry of the elephant's life, he was promoted to Vaikuntaloka to become a personal associate of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Narayana, in a body exactly like that of the Lord. This is called Swarupya. So, of course, this was the same thing that we read about with King Huhu that this curse of crocodile actually accelerated his devotional life. So we will discuss that tomorrow, how reverses can act as accelerators of our spiritual life. And today we're going to look at the perception of Augusta Muni. So Augusta Muni sees Aharaj in Virginia and decides that the king is silent out of enmity and malice. 
He decides that the reason for the king's silence is that the king is insulting him. So we can think of so many times in our life when people have misunderstood our intentions. You know, we had one set of intentions, uh, we were in one frame of mind, and our actions were grossly misinterpreted. Someone looked at our behavior and said, I know why you're doing that. You're doing that because of such and such. No, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because of this. And we weren't believed. And the person passed some sort of judgment on us because of their assessment of our behavior. It's, it's very interesting that in modern society, empiricism is put forward as the main means of gaining knowledge. You observe with your senses, you take that data, you use your logic, and you come to some conclusion. You create some story about reality. And then you test it by further observations, and you say, now we have a hypothesis, we have a theory, we have a law of nature. And the general public is told that this is the only intelligent and rational way to make decisions about what goes on in the world and what is reality. When you get up into the doctoral level of education, however, they're very honest that this empiric method is basically garbage. You know, I, I, one of the, let's say the worst class I had to attend for my doctoral studies was a class called the philosophy of research, the philosophy of science. And my class was a very good example of rampant mental speculation. What is the nature of reality? You know, thankfully the teacher wasn't very good, so I could sit in the back of the class and read Nero Tumadastakura songs most of the time. <laughs> she didn't care if you actually read the material. But I thought, ah, oh, this is what Prabhupada talks about, this mental speculation. But one part of the class was very useful, where we went through what are the problems with empiricism? What's, what's wrong with it? And one of the problems is that you can create many different stories about the same set of facts. Just like detectives. You know, they find some crime scene and they recreate a story about the crime scene. But the story isn't always right. Sometimes people are incarcerated for 20 years and then, you know, now with DNA evidence, they're exonerated. But it looked like it fit. And I'm sure that most of us have read detective stories or watched detective movies and, it, you know, you've been given the facts and it looks like this story fits the facts and you find out it's a different story. You find out it's something else. And again, we have this experience in our life that people miss, put a different story on our behavior than is the real story. And we've also done that. We've also looked at other people's behavior and made up a story in our mind. That this is what that behavior means. And we've been wrong. Now it's very interesting that we in the Hare Krishna movement are told practically from day one that there are four defects of a conditioned soul. What are the four defects? Hmm? To make mistakes. Imperfect senses. Cheating. 
an illusion. Now, when I first moved into the temple ashram and I was attending Bhagavatam classes, and the devotees were often speaking heavily against the materialist and the impersonalist. And I would think, with the impersonalist, I was thinking, why do they spend so much time talking about some moving media? You know, with the materialist, yeah, those nasty materialists. And after a few months of chanting Hare Krishna and doing service, I realized, oh, I'm an impersonalist. <laughs> I'm a materialist. It was rather shocking. So in a similar way, we read about these four defects, and we think, yeah, those are the defects of all the people out there. All those materialistic people. They have these defects. But me, I'm following Shastra, so I don't have any defects. And we believe, I mean, I find it astonishing that you can be a member of the Hare Krishna movement for 20 or 30 years and still believe that your perception of reality is reality. My dear friends, our perception of reality is not reality. The psychologists have a term for this. The map is not the territory. What we have in our mind is a map. But it's not the reality. I don't perceive reality. Now again, I find it very interesting that there are materialistic people who are aware of this. They're very aware of this. They know that what we're perceiving is just something in the mind. I'm not directly actually touching reality. But I become convinced that my perception of reality is objective reality. And when you take up a religious system, you may become even more convinced of that. Well, this philosophy is the absolute truth. Therefore, what I perceive is the absolute truth. This is even more humorous when we're all very socialized in this kind to say that we're not here devotees. Even if we believe we are, we... We say, oh, no, no, I'm not pure devotee. I'm very fallen. I'm just a neophyte. But my perception of reality is the absolute truth. My understanding of the scripture is the same as the scripture. When I read the scripture, I know exactly what Krishna meant. I, I remember one of my godbrothers writing an email to a group of devotees saying, you know, this is what it says in the scripture, and that's Krishna's opinion, and that's it. And what he was really saying is, I'm right and you're all wrong. He, was, he couldn't make the difference between the scripture and my understanding of the scripture. He didn't think there was a difference. Well, the scripture is the scripture, that's what it says. Obviously, that's what it means. Well, not necessarily. Prabhupada said you can understand every verse from many, 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 many angles of vision. And if I'm honest, that I'm not a pure devotee. And it's a real easy test. Are you swimming in transcendental ecstasy at every moment? Pretty simple. When you chant Hare Krishna, you actually perceive that Krishna's name and Krishna are the same. Is the holy name leaving Krishna's pastimes in your heart? Are you entering into Krishna's pastimes in your spiritual body and doing your eternal service in your heart as you chant Hare Krishna? If it's not happening to you, you're not a pure devotee. And if you're not a pure devotee, then you're covered by the modes of material nature. If you're covered by the modes of material nature, you don't perceive things as they are. That pretty logical? 
So that probably applies to me. I'm probably not perceiving things as they are. Now, as I go on, my perception should get clearer and clearer and clearer. We were talking about right, seeing ourselves honestly as we progress in Christian consciousness. And one of the things you should honestly see is that I really don't know very much. Which is, by the way, a very healthy place to be. Say, I, I really don't know. What do I know? What do I understand? And what does the covering of the modes mean? It means I perceive things according to a certain set of desires. I think something's good, something's bad, something's favorable, something's not favorable, something's, somebody's an enemy, somebody's a friend, according to my particular set of desires. But the modes act as, as filters on reality. Colored filters through which I, that's how I perceive everything. So to whatever extent we're covered by the modes, our perception is distorted. And Krishna explains this very nicely in the 17th and 18th chapter of Bhagavad Gita. Understanding in the mode of ignorance, understanding in the mode of passion, understanding in the mode of goodness. And knowledge in the mode of passion, knowledge in the mode of ignorance, and knowledge in the mode of goodness. And if, honestly, I'm still under the modes of material nature, then my perception is distorted. And we see that this happens even with very elevated persons. And we were talking about the story of uh, Prasadja and how he was cursed by the sister who, who was temporarily overcome by the mode of ignorance. And here we find Augusta Muni is misperceiving the actions of Rudra Swami. He's misinterpreting them. He doesn't take the time to find out what the real story is. He jumps to a conclusion and he acts on it. Now, of course, in this case, Augusta Muni is acting as Krishna's agent. So we can act as Krishna's agent even in our ignorance. In fact, everybody ultimately acts as Krishna's agent. Even terrible demoniac people like Stalin and Ilyamin and Hitler and who are the latest ones. Hmm? You know, whoever the, the current demons are in the world, you know, they're all also acting as Krishna's agents. It's not that Hitler could torture and kill somebody who wasn't destined to be tortured and killed. That's not possible. You can't go above the plan of the Lord. But we want to be Krishna's agents in a different way. We don't want Krishna to use our ignorance in his service. We want Krishna to work with us in a loving reciprocation. Where we're willing, conscious agents of his will. Acting with knowledge and with proper perception. But if this kind of thing can happen to Augusta, then it can certainly happen to us. And uh, two other examples we can think of of exactly the same thing, and I mentioned them also the other day, is Daksha and Lord Shiva, where Lord Shiva was engaged in trance meditation. And Daksha said, you're insulting me. I'm your father-in-law, and you're not getting up and receiving me. And the other, of course, was Bariket with Shankarishi. And the same thing, that Bariket said, I'm the king, I'm thirsty, you're meant to serve the king. And it didn't occur to him that Shamakarishi was in a mystic trance. Now, with Brickett, it occurred to him later, actually, as he was going back to his palace, he started thinking, hmm, maybe that yogi was actually in a mystic trance. So sometimes that happens with us, too. We jump to a judgment, we say something, we do something, and later we think, hmm, 
Maybe I was wrong. So wouldn't it be nice to be able to do that hmm before we open our mouth? I think I said this the other day. I was talking about something actually with, uh, with one of my sons. And he said, Mata, are you really sure about this? I said, oh yeah, definitely. And then it was this long pause. He said, Mata, are you 100% sure? And then I kind of stopped and said, uh, maybe not. Maybe 95% sure. <laughs> and I've gotten to the point in my life when people ask me, are you sure? And I say, you know, I'm not sure of anything except Krishna is God and I'm his servant and everything else I can know. I think that's a lot safer than thinking I know and I'm sure. So Augustine Moody, he comes, what does he see? He sees, here's Exatria, a retired Exatria, a vanaprastha Exatria. Here's Exatria, who's insulting a Brahmana. I'm a Brahmana, he's Exatria. He was seeing on a material level, he was seeing on a Varnashram level. Now what was actually happening is here's a great devotee who's absorbed in trance on the Supreme Personality of God. All right. So what are we going to do about this? I mean, first of all, I don't think we should use the excuse that I'm Krishna's instrument, even if I judge you wrongly. Well, look, Augustine Muni was Krishna's instrument. Right? Pariket was Krishna's instrument. Doctor was Krishna's instrument. It was all part of Krishna's plan, and they were just helping with Krishna's plan. So if I jump to the wrong conclusion about you or about the circumstances, and I curse you, or I spread rumors all over the place, it's Krishna's mercy for you. But these people who act as Krishna's instrument in this way, you know, they, they get some reaction. Pariket got a reaction. He was cursed to die. Of course, it's all legal, but still the, le- the, the other lesson is also there. Daksha also got a reaction. He got killed, and then he got a goat's head. It wasn't that he didn't get any kind of reaction. So part of this starts with just internalizing the teachings. Someone said to me the other day, well, you know, I'm in ISKCON because we have the best philosophy. But the philosophy shouldn't be just something out here. Philosophy has to come here, that this applies to me. We were talking the other day about humility. A really nice way to develop humility is to admit, I've made a lot of mistakes in judgment. You know, a lot. And I should not assume that what I think is happening is actually happening. And another good example I just thought of is uh, Satrajit. So Satrajit had this jewel. I mean, he had this whole story. It made a lot of sense to him. He had this jewel. It gave him a lot of gold every day. You know, if you have a jewel that's producing 170 pounds every day, you're going to assume that other people are going to want it. That's a reasonable assumption. And he comes into Dwarka and he doesn't see Krishna. Why doesn't he see Krishna? Because he, probably because he's thinking Krishna would ask for it. And Krishna went to him and said, nice jewel you have. The person who deserves this jewel is Maharaj Ugrasena, my grandfather, the king. He should offer the, the best thing to the king. And then he would use his gold for the benefit of all of the citizens. And Satyajit didn't give it to King Ugrasena. He wanted the gold himself. Then one day his brother Prasena wanted to show off the family opulence. What's the use of having opulence if he never showed it off? 
So he wore the jewel around his neck and he was going by horse through the city of Dwarka and he also went out in the surrounding countryside where a lion killed him. And then Jambavan, uh, sometimes Jambavan's portrayed in Indian movies as a bear. He's not a bear, he's a human. Now probably said he's like a tribal person. So I probably said if he was an animal, Krishna would not have married his daughter. Huh. Huh. Probably said that Jambavan was more like a sub-Saharan African. And uh, of course Krishna was very fond of, of his wife Jambavati and her children. Those were his favorite children. But anyway, so Jambavan was very strong. And he's called the king of the bears, and sometimes the king of the monkeys, because he actually was controlling bears and monkeys. So anyway, he, he killed this lion, he took the jewel, he didn't take it very, it was something very consequential, he gave it to his child as a toy, you give your child a toy that produces 170 pounds of gold every day. But my point is that Sakaji, he put two and two together, and he said, okay, my brother didn't come back from the forest, he disappeared. And Krishna asked him for the jewel. Krishna must have killed my brother and taken the jewel. And he never, it didn't occur to him that his conclusion was a story that he had made up to explain the facts. And that there might have been a hundred different stories that could have explained the facts. And he had no evidence that his story was the right story. But he was so convinced that his story, it must be, it's gotta be. What's the only other explanation? It fits together so perfectly. He was so convinced. He started telling everybody. That Krishna's a murderer. And Krishna didn't like being defamed. Just like I don't like being defamed. People have done that to me too. You know, made some, jumped to some conclusion about me and gone around telling everybody. And it's painful. So Krishna went and found Jamavan and got back the jewel and showed everybody the jewel and gave it back to Satyajit, the presence of everybody and so forth. So let's not be like Satyajit. I mean, it's interesting also because we all talk about how we want to be in an ISKCON that has what Prabhupada wanted, a family atmosphere of love and trust. Not a dysfunctional family atmosphere, <laughs> but a loving family atmosphere where there's love and trust. And that means taking some time. And especially if I'm upset about something. And I think this person's done something wrong. This, is a, this was their motive. We particularly, particularly seem to do this about people in leadership positions. Now, ultimately because we do that about Krishna. That's our basic disease is we're critical of Krishna. So we tend to criticize anyone who represents Krishna. Our parents, our husband, our temple president. Our GBC, focus on criticism on But whenever we think, oh, this person, I know they're like, they're definitely like this. They're definitely insulting. They're definitely greedy. That's why they did it. They did it because they're greedy. And this is what they did. They did this and this, and it's obvious. And it's interesting, you know, when I've heard people talk like this, and sometimes I'll say, this is just your story. It's not necessarily the truth. Generally, people don't accept it. It has to be. What other explanation? What do you mean it's my story? What do you mean it's my interpretation? What else could it be? And of course, especially when our interpretation is a negative one. But we should even be careful of positive interpretations. 
mean, we've also suffered in our Hare Krishna movement from ascribing qualities of saintly persons to somebody who's not. We've had that kind of problem also. That I just think, think somebody who sings in a nice voice and has some beatific look on their face. You know, they must be a saintly person. Or if a hundred, that probably defines blind following. A hundred thousand people are following this person, they must be a saint. So even then, we know we're asked to go beyond our imperfect senses. So first of all, to be aware, I have imperfect senses. I don't, I don't even perceive behavior accurately. What to speak of interpreting it probably. I don't even perceive it accurately. Do you know that a large portion of people who are unjustly accused of a crime are accused due to eyewitness testimony? There was one situation in America where there were four or five different women who had all been convicted of the same crime, incarcerated in different prisons in different parts of the state. So people didn't put the two and two together and realize that five different women had all been accused of exactly the same crime in different places. What did they have in common? They were all short of that. So the person who saw the crime committed just registered it was a short, fat lady. And they accused the wrong person. And they found this out when finally the right person was found. Again, through DNA evidence. And then they found that all these other five ladies were in jail unjustly. And every one of them had been the result of eyewitness testimony. I mean, just as we recently, how finally the courts are understanding that eyewitness testimony is often wrong. Yeah, that's the one he is. I recognize him anyway. And it's not. So to admit, my senses are imperfect. I do not perceive reality. I am not aware of what everybody did. I do not remember exactly what everybody said. I can't even remember exactly what I said five minutes ago and exactly what I did five minutes ago. I can't remember where I put my keys 20 minutes ago. And I think I'm going to remember exactly what you said and exactly what you did. You know, I'm very charitable with, with myself in one sense, you know, but then I just have this sort of inflated view of, of my abilities. Then to make mistakes, make mistakes. So first is imperfect senses, then mistakes is in logic. I take the data from my, I take the imperfect data from my senses. And I use my often mistaken logic to create a story about the data. Okay, this is what happened, this is what happened, and this is what it means. You know, when we do scientific research, you do three things. You collect raw data, you analyze the raw data, and then you interpret the data. I was talking to someone the other day about my doctoral thesis, and I said I found that teachers in Hare Krishna schools were more satisfied the greater the number of children from Indian families in the school, and they were less satisfied the greater the number of non-Indian ISKCON children in the school. And this devotee said, what does that mean? I said, I have no idea. That's simply the data that I collected. But part of what you're supposed to do in a thesis is you're supposed to guess what it means. You know, this is the percentage, what does it mean? One of the techniques that we learn to evaluate teachers in a school is we, we go in the classroom and we collect raw data. 
How many memory questions do you ask? How many analytical questions do you ask? How many evaluative questions do you ask? What level of thinking are you asking for the students? We also take, collect raw data. Which children do you ask questions of? Do you only ask questions of the kids in the front row or just the boys? Or, you know, we collect this data. Or where do you move, or how do you move around the classroom? We chart their movements. And then we analyze it and we'll say, okay, 5% of the time you ask analytical questions, 50% of the time you ask memory questions. We do the analysis. And then we give that to the teacher and we say, what do you think this means? Because generally the evaluation of teachers is somebody goes in and says, uh, well-planned lesson. You know, excellent, good, bad. Good control over the classroom, all judgments. And what we were trained is collect the data and let the teacher make the judgment on themselves, let them evaluate themselves, and discuss the judgment and the interpretation with them. So, okay, I'm gathering defective information through my senses, then I have a defective process of, anal of analyzing that information. Then I have a tendency to cheat. <laughs> tendency to cheat means I'm gonna skew my interpretation in my favor. And because I'm illusioned, I don't even know I'm doing it. I think I'm presenting the facts. I'm not. I'm presenting a twisted version of an imperfectly perceived reality that's going to favor my position. And I believe, I really believe, because I'm an illusion, that what my senses are perceiving and what's actually happening in the world is the same. First of all, I believe that, that the information I'm bringing in is very high quality. Then I believe that my way of interpreting the information is the only possible way that it can be interpreted. Anyone who has any other interpretation is wrong. I believe that my interpretation is unbiased, that I'm not cheating, that I'm presenting a bird's eye view of the indisputable story about the indisputable facts. And that I altogether, that all of this is true. And that you should agree with me if you are intelligent. <laughs> and you would say, okay, well, how else are we going to function in the world? Which is a pretty sad question. Because functioning like this in the world does not bring us much happiness. It leads us into a lot of conflict with other people who, by the way, are doing exactly the same thing, but favoring their position. And we may also think, well, if we're all perfectly Christian conscious, we'd all see things in exactly the same way. By the way, that's not true either. Mother Yasoda doesn't see things exactly the way that she meant to write around season. She sees them a little differently. And we find that Krishna is described differently by the great souls. We were talking about this the other morning with uh, Govardhan Kujabula. That because God is a person, he's going to be perceived differently by different liberated persons. So this real problem we have in conditioned life, by the way, has its opposite, ultimate reality in the spiritual world. The ultimate reality is not negation of individual perception. That's not the ultimate absolute truth. The ultimate absolute truth doesn't mean that everyone who's a liberated soul from the modes of material nature will perceive things in exactly the same way as everybody else, come to exactly the same conclusions as everybody else. That's not true. And the reason it's not true is that the absolute truth is not a table. 
or even just a diffused white light, the absolute truth is a person. And Kapila says that that person takes a different form according to the desire of each devotee. And Sanatana Swami says that the Supreme Lord has a particular quality that attacks each individual jiva. That we, each as an individual soul, are particularly attracted to one particular quality of the Lord. And there's unlimited jivas and unlimited qualities, and we match with one of them, that we particularly like. So that means my perception of Krishna, even if I'm at the platform of prema and rasa, is going to be a little different than yours, which will be a little different than yours. The difference is that those differences in perception, all being on the level of reality, without any cheating, are all in harmony. Something like you might see an acrobatic show or a dance performance, and people may be doing different things, but they're all in harmony with each other. Or you have a feast plate with many different preparations, but if it's cooked properly, then everything's in harmony. You have all the six tastes, and everything fits with one another. Or, you know, you're wearing clothes that have different colors and different patterns, but they can harmonize with each other. Or this temple room, I was just noticing yesterday how the designs on the gates, the designs on the borders of the pictures, and the designs carved into the door are all in harmony with each other. Although they're slightly different. They're not exactly the same. But they all match. So it's possible to have individuality that is harmonious and beautiful. Like in the spiritual world, there are males and females. But they get along all the time. (laughs) And they complement each other. And they don't have to read books like Men Are From Mars and Men Are From Venus to do it. They naturally complement each other. So there is a level at which individual perception is complementary and harmonious rather than in conflict and in envious competition. So that's what we're aiming for. We're aiming for that kind of individuality. We're not aiming for some homogeneous everybody agrees with everybody else. Devotee wrote to Prabhupada, suppose they have a difference of opinion. He said, that's because you're an individual. He said, you don't have a difference of opinion about the process. You're not going to say, okay, instead of Hare Krishna, I'm going to chant Om Namo Shivaya, instead of 16 now, I'm going to chant 16 beads, or something like that. But we do have our individual perceptions. So as really trying to be honest persons, Prabhupada Daswaswami said, you must give up the seat. As really trying to be honest persons, we should be honest that if I don't yet have the symptoms of freedom from the modes of material nature, and if we want to know the symptoms, they're in the end of the second chapter of Bhagavad Gita, they're in Bhagavad Gita 14 chapter, where Arjuna asks, what are the symptoms of someone whose consciousness is thus merged into transcendence? How does he speak? What is his language? How does he sit? How does he walk? And he asks again in the 14th chapter, read the symptoms of one who's transcendental. Read the qualities of a devotee at the end of the 12th chapter. And if you honestly look and say, I don't, I'm not exhibiting all that, then understand that our behavior is affected by these four defects. And then we can kind of step back a little bit and be a little actively, practically humble. Not jump to, not consider that our conclusions about what's going on is the truth. Not judge other people and act on the basis of those judgments. But ask us somebody else, you know, it's a nice thing to do. Prabhu, I saw you do this, and I saw you do that, and I saw you do the other thing. I mean, it's interesting. There's psychological techniques that teach this. And this is our philosophy, and we don't practice it. 
you know, you can go to some, to learn some communication technique and psychological technique that starts off with the premise that we have these four defects and that we should make some allowance for that. And that's our philosophy. So instead of just going to someone and saying, you're envious, you're this, you're this, you're, or you're wonderful, and you're a pure body, you can say, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this, I saw you do this, I heard you say this, and, and I'm feeling a little disturbed about this. I'm, I'm worried that maybe it means this. Would you tell me what you were thinking? Would you tell me what you were doing? To let me hear from the other person. Be willing to suspend judgment because that's what we want people to do for us. What I want people to do for me is I want people to take the time to understand me and not judge me. I want people to connect with me. I want people to understand me. I want people to communicate with me. I want people to try to see my point of view. And if they do that, I'm much more willing to admit that I've made a mistake when I have. So to do that for others, take the time to hear their point of view, to find out what was going on in their life, what they were trying to accomplish. To always remember that my perceptions are not correct, ever. I never perceive reality as reality, ever. It just doesn't happen. My senses are imperfect. My logical facility is full of mistakes. I'm going to bias things in my own favor, and I'm not going to know that I'm doing it. So at least let's try to get out of the illusion, at least theoretically, that I'm doing it. And to aim for real diversity and real individuality. As Prabhupada said, unity and diversity. Prabhupada never said unity, he said unity and diversity. We're not interested in the persons. Krishna consciousness does not mean that A, I understand everything perfectly, and B, you have to agree with me. Because this is the absolute truth, and we also see things the same way, which happens to be my way because I see everything. And that it's all right, especially as we make progress in Krishna consciousness, and especially as we do see the modes of material nature's influence starting to abate, it's all right that we have different ways that we're inspired to spread the Krishna consciousness movement. And it's all right, and it's good, and it's healthy that we have different perspectives on things, as long as they're within the boundary of Guru Sahaja Shastra. We want that. Prabhupada said, just like there's different political parties within the same country, but they're all working for the good of the country. We're not trying for a one-party government. And even Goloka Vrindavan is not a one-party government. There are different groups of gopis, and they have different opinions. They really do have different opinions. It's not that they sort of have different opinions. Chandravali thinks that Radharani is not pleasing Krishna very nicely because she gets mad at him. And she says, you can't come in my country. You can't be with me. Forget it. Get out of here, cheating, lying, rascal. Go away. And Chandrali says, how can she talk to Krishna like that? She should immediately forgive him and accept him. How does she say she loved Krishna? And Radharani looks at Chandrali and says, how can she say she loves Krishna? She just always gives in. She's always submissive. She never puts up a fight. Krishna likes a little bit of fight and spiciness in his relationships. You know, she doesn't really love Krishna. So they have their points of view. But they're also cousins and they're good friends and they dance in the last little and it's in harmony. Or when Gopakumar goes to Vaikuntha and he starts calling Narayan and Gopal, hey Gopal, and some of the Vaikuntha Vasis say, you can't call Narayan Gopal. 
coward boy sometimes to kill Kamsa and other demons. That's true, but that's not his overall mood. He's the king of kings. You have to treat him with respect. And some of the other Vaikuntabhasas says, no, you can call the Lord by any of his names. Because Gopal is one of his bona fide names, you can call him by Gopal. So there was a difference of opinion even in Vaikuntha. They had a debate. The Gopal team won the debate. And it was also interesting that the Vaikuntabhasas think that Narayana is the supreme. They have a different opinion. They have a different perception. And that's the beauty of our philosophy. We don't say that if you become a pure devotee, you're going to be like everybody else. You're going to lose your individuality. You're all going to be a robot. You're going to be some kind of brainwashed cult member. No. That we're all going to agree about everything. We're all going to like exactly the same things. Each of the pure devotees likes different kinds of food. And different kinds of colors and different kinds of clothes. They have their favorite colors and their favorite clothes and their favorite food and their favorite pastimes and their favorite service. But the difference is that it's harmonious. So we should be trying to come to that position where we can harmonize people's different perspectives. And while we have a materialistic perspective, we should be very, very careful that we don't act as if we're God. So I don't have a whole lot of time today. I can take maybe one or two questions. I should say, by the way, that realizing these things and acting on these things makes you a lot happier <laughs> and really improves your human relations with the speaker helping you advance efficient consciousness. But even materially, you feel a lot happier if you don't pretend to be not. <laughs> You'll even have, you know, better marriages and better friendships and get along better with people from a material point with the speaker being able to advance efficient consciousness. Hope I didn't offend any of you this time. Yes, Jim. How come it seems like that most people will jump to negative conclusions first rather than positive conclusions? Isn't that interesting? Well, that alone should tell us how distorted our conclusions are. I was once asked in Soho Street by one guest, why are 90% of Prabhupada's disciples inactive in this time? I said, where did you get your data? I said, first of all, what do you mean by active or inactive in this time? How are you defining your terms? And what research have you done? Well, I didn't do any research, but answer my question anyway. Actually, I did find someone who did research that a third of Shiva Prabhupada's disciples are active in this time. So 33%, not 10%. But we had a nice discussion among the devotees about how people throw around statistics that have no research behind them. Oh, we have a divorce rate of 70%. Well, did you actually research it? You know, I researched all the teachers in Hari Krishna schools in 2005, and the divorce and remarriage rate was 1.7%. Where are you getting the 60, 70% from? What's, what's it based on? What's your data? And we went through the things that people say, you know, none of the kids born in the movement do any service. And what we realized at the end of the discussion, I said that all of these assertions, are they negative or positive? And everyone went, oh, they're all negative. We don't jump to positive conclusions. So I, I don't know exactly. My, my, own, my own little theory is that we tend to jump to negative conclusions about others to make ourselves look good out of envy, out of fear also. 
that I, if I assume that everyone's my enemy, I'll be much more likely to protect myself because sometimes I've assumed that people were my friends and they weren't and they hurt me and I got, you know. So better to just go around thinking that even my husband and my wife and my children and my friends and my temple president and my hippie jolly that they're actually friends. I'll be much safer that way. So that could be one reason. Another reason is just so I can think I'm better than everybody else. But that, that's another key indicator that we're making mistakes and we have imperfect senses because my interpretations often tend to be negative. Interesting. But I don't want other people to do that to me. <laughs> I don't want other people to have you know, the majority of their interpretations of me be negative. I'm sure there's other, other reasons for that, but those are two I can think of. Fear and envy. Any other points, questions? Yes. Well, you come to a conclusion, but you maintain an attitude that you could be wrong. So first of all, you make some effort to find, if it's possible, you make an effort to find out if there's alternative conclusions. Especially if you're dealing with other people, you can ask those people and talk to those people. And find out their perspective on their own behavior. That might be a very useful bit of information. What do you think you did? And why do you think you did it? Instead of just what do I think you did and why do I think you did it? And to take the time to do that. If you're not willing to take the time to do that, don't take your interpretation very seriously. And I, and I wouldn't take much action based on it. And whatever action you take, be open to the fact that we may have made a wrong interpretation and therefore action may not be appropriate. Basically, always, always have a mood of humility and openness. Openness to being corrected without becoming angry that somebody corrects me, without becoming angry and defensive. How dare you say that my interpretation is, that I'm wrong, we don't even say my interpretation. And add those little words to our vocabulary. This is my understanding, this is my interpretation. Instead of this is just the way it is. Well, it's obvious, that's obvious to me. Now, even psychologists, they can, they can, we can say that our biases are from the most material nature. They'll talk about how our biases are cultural. Our biases are due to our upbringing. That's also a fact. I mean, we, frankly, we're also very challenged because this is a very international society for Christian consciousness and different cultures do interpret the same behavior in different ways. You know, in, for Indians, it's respectful to put food on your plate that, you, that the guest doesn't want. That's respectful. In America, that's very insulting. In America, it's respectful that if my guest says, no, I don't want any more, that I don't give them any more. In India, that's an insult. Because you're supposed to say no when you mean yes. So, you know, if I have an Indian over in my house and I want to show them respect, and I say, would you like another japati? And they say, no, thank you. Then out of respect, I don't, don't give them another japati. And they're sitting there thinking, my God, this person is insulted. They're not feeding So to, you know, to, 
it, one thing we can do is become aware of different people's cultural assumptions. There are definitely cultural assumptions that we work with in this context. And how many different cultures are represented in this one room? Probably at least 10. And we have different cultural assumptions. We really do. We have different cultural assumptions about how men should behave, how women should behave, how subordinates should behave, how guests should be treated. And we all, we all want respect. We all want to give respect. We all want to give consideration. And we all believe in those. But we have different ways of demonstrating them. Sometimes opposite ways of demonstrating I offended an Indian devotee by saying, please accept my obeisances. He said, don't offer your obeisances to me, you're my senior. He said, please, don't do this. It's like, oh yeah, you're Indian. And then he went, what do you mean by that? So, that's another way you can do, you know, be aware that different people have different cultural backgrounds, different people have different upbringings, they may have different interpretations on reality. One is not right and one is not wrong, they're just different. And be very open, you know, like try to understand how other people see things as far as you can. Make provisions for that, try to talk in other people's language as far as you can. Don't just speak English louder to a Russian. You know, kind of thing. In other words, don't just do your own culture more with somebody else. And be, be open, be willing to back off from your position. You know, we have to have some working hypothesis in order to function. Look, we're going out to the scientists and we're saying all these things I'm saying to them, aren't we? We're going out to the materialists and say, stop thinking you're absolutely right. Admit that you might be misinterpreting your data. Admit that your data may be limited. Admit it. Stop thinking that you know everything. That's what we say to them, right? So then let's do it ourselves, too. Oh, but I'm pure. Okay. <laughs> it's exact, exactly what we want the materialists and the scientists to do. You know, you make a, you have a provisional theory. You have a provisional theory. Antibiotics are a great drug that's going to save society. That's your provisional theory. But you better be open to the fact that maybe there's something else going on. Maybe the overuse of antibiotics is going to create super infections that are no longer curable by antibiotics. So we've cured all these diseases, you're going to create new diseases. You know, when antibiotics were first promoted, nobody thought like that at all. This is the miracle drug that's going to change the world, and there's nothing wrong with it. You know, DDT, it's great. We're going to wipe out malaria. We wiped out the little birds, too. You know. So we want them to be open. So be open. I've got this great plan to fix this thing in the Hare Krishna movement, but you may be causing an uproar. Again, the materialists know this stuff. They call that the law of unintended consequences and things like that. So you just have that, have that all the time, have that awareness. I have imperfect senses, I make mistakes, I cheat, and I'm an illusion. And so I shouldn't take myself very seriously. I can, make a, I can have a provisional conclusion. I, first of all, take the time and the 
energy to gather more information, to ask other people. Especially if it's going to be a big thing that may really affect people's relationships or really affect some project. Take it. Take the energy. People will appreciate it so much. Oh, it's, I can't count how many times I wish somebody had said, oh, well, what's, why are you doing this? What's your perspective? Why did this ask me? I can tell them in five minutes. And if for some reason you can't do that, always have in your mind, I could be wrong, I could be wrong, I could be wrong, I could be wrong. It might be something else, it might be something else, it might be something else, it might be something else. I might not be right, I am not God. <laughs> I am open, therefore, to other people coming up with another interpretation. I'm open to changing my things. I'm not. We want to be fixed in love. We don't want to be fixed in, a, uh, in, in faith in our senses of mind. Yes, we Other person may be right. So if you want to put it positively, there may be other ways of looking at this. There may be other answers. There may be other stories. There may be other perspectives which are more valid than mine or equally valid to mine. There may be five different ways of looking at another. There may be five different ways of looking at that are all true. Probably. So we should examine every one of the verses from many, many angles of vision. There's not only one angle of vision. Just like these verses I'm talking about today. Could you take these same verses and give a hundred different classes on them? Or 200, or 500, or 1,000? Could you take the topic, you're not this body, and give a thousand different classes on you're not this body? And they, and they could all be correct. And in fact, Prabhupada told us to do that. He said we should examine from many, many angles of vision. So that's another thing. There's that, okay, even if my story is right, it's not the only right. There may be other rights that are equally right. And I don't have to force my right on somebody else. They can have their own right, as long as it's within the Guru Sangha Shastra. As long as it doesn't go out of that boundary. And, and the Guru Sangha Shastra boundary, by the way, is a big boundary. It's not a, it's not a, Prabhupada said the Krishna consciousness is not narrow or stereotyped. He said that many times. The Guru Sangha Shastra is not a teeny, teeny, tiny little thing that everybody has to fit in this little, Prabhupada made a whole, the house and the whole world could live. It's a big house. It's not a closet. So, you know, and as, as we do that, then we will come to the point of the harmonious individuality that we're seeking. We'll start to be cultivating, sadhana bhakti, we'll start to be cultivating a society where there's harmonious individuality, where there's not harmony at the expense of individuality. Is that all right? It, it's not really that hard to do. It's, it, it just takes some practice. I mean, I really think any of us could start doing this regularly within a week. You just have to make the determination that you can do it. Every time you catch yourself saying things like, well, it's obvious, it has to be that way. Of course that's what they're doing. Might there be other ways of looking at this that are all equally valid? Or might my, might my way be one right way among many? Or might my, my way be wrong totally? Or might my way be a lesser form of right? Because, you know, Augusta Muni was right. It was Exatria disrespecting the Brahmana. That was correct, but it wasn't the only correct. There was a higher level of correct. So maybe I'm correct, but maybe I'm correct on this platform, and maybe someone else is correct on this platform. 
or maybe we're all correct horizontally on different platforms, different visions because we're different. And this is one reason why even the kings had advisors. The good kings didn't just rule as a one autocratic person. And they would intentionally have advisors who had very different perspectives from their own and very different personalities from their own. And any kind of management and leadership, you want to have people who have different visions and different, different perspectives. And every, every team member has something to contribute. We shouldn't want to fill our management groups with just people that have our own perspective. By the way, Krishna really likes individuality a lot. He even doesn't make two snowflakes the same, and they're just objects. They're just very temporary existing ice crystals. It would be much more efficient to make all of them the same. And he just doesn't. Krishna just doesn't make any two things practically the same. It's just a, individuality is a really deep, deep value for Krishna. Something very important. So is that okay? Yeah. We have we can that's one of the arguments of the mind. Well, if I don't jump to my own conclusions, I won't be able to do anything. Okay, thank you very much. All very sushi. Thank you.